invite you to remain standing in confidence that God speaks to us uh, through His Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to grab one of the blue Bibles that should be a chair in front of a chair back near you and turn to page 859 is where we will be this morning. Uh, our studies in Luke's Gospel continue as we march on through chapter 4. Pastor Belanger helped us look at the first 13 verses of chapter 4 last week and Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness. And we pick up the story this morning by looking at verses 14 through 30 together. So let me get us going by reading them for us and then pray once again briefly for God to bless our study of his word and, and we will study together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do delight in your word that reveals unto us your Son. Lord, we confess this morning that we need him, for he is our life. He is our all. So open our minds by the power of the Spirit to receive this truth. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts of faith and repentance that we indeed might accept Christ and not reject him. Help us to hear as people who are hungry and thirsty for the truth. Help me 
to preach as I ought. With faithfulness, with clarity, with courage. Help me to preach as a dying man unto dying people. For us to listen as if this sermon might be our last. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think it was a middle school speech class when I first interacted with any American presidential inaugural address because there was one day in which in the speech class we began to study some of the most famous inauguration addresses in our country's history. And so in time we made it to John F. Kennedy's address where he famously declared, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And as we worked our way backwards in time, we eventually came to FDR's inauguration address that contains one of the most famous lines ever uttered by an American president. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And it was the first time, I think, in my life, as something of an armchair historian, that I, I heard that most American historians think that Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address is the best one ever delivered. It was delivered right on the eve of the Civil War's end. It was less than a month before he was going to be assassinated. And it was an inauguration address that was only 700 words from start to finish as he laid out once again his plan for his second term in leading our nation. And what we come to this morning in Luke chapter 4 is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And Luke appropriately situates his attention, and thus our attention as well, on a sermon that in every way functions as an inauguration address for what Jesus is going to do in his earthly ministry. It sets the agenda for his mission. It gives us an idea of where he's going to focus and concentrate in his ministry in and around Israel. And it reveals unto us much in spite of the fact that his sermon, at least as Luke retells it, his inauguration address doesn't even reach 200 words in length. And so kids, as we study this this morning, you might write this down if you can, we want to answer two simple questions about Jesus from this passage. Number one, who he is. So who is Jesus? And then secondly, what did he come to do? And especially in early chapters of any of the four Gospels in the Bible, it's always wise to even ask those questions anytime uh, we come to a study of a Gospel passage. Who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? He's going to answer that for us clearly this morning, and I hope it will be something stirring unto our souls. But let me give you a little bit of a summary hint at what Jesus says. The theme of this passage is quite simple and clear, that Jesus is God's Messiah who has come to announce the arrival of God's kingdom. It's who he is and what he has come to do. But there are other questions that we do want to try to answer this morning. Is well, okay, he's come to announce the arrival of God's kingdom, but what kind of a kingdom is coming. How does this kingdom advance? And maybe for some of us, if not all of us in the room this morning, that great and important question of who belongs in this kingdom. So I just want to walk through our text under two simple headings. We first want to notice how the people were attracted to God's preacher, and then we want to see how ultimately, by the end of the text, they have rejected God's son. So attraction 
and rejection. We want to notice the sweep of that movement uh, within our passage. And first, we want to see how Jesus' ministry begins. Look at verses 14 and 15 once again. Luke tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. If you haven't noticed yet, we have mentioned it a couple times already in our study of Luke, that that Luke's gospel uniquely emphasizes the influence and importance of the Spirit on Jesus' life and ministry. The Spirit descends upon him at his baptism, anointing him for his ministry. Last week, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness for a time of testing and tempting. And now we see that the Spirit has filled him, has empowered him to do what? Preach throughout the area, which we know from the other Gospels, is throughout the area of Capernaum. So he's a, he's a preaching minister going on preaching tours. There's great attraction, you'll notice, of course, in verse 15 once again, that he's being glorified by all. He's stirring up no small amount of attention in his ministry right from the outset as he's declaring the Gospel, as he's preaching, and as he's teaching in synagogues throughout the country. And eventually he makes his way back to his hometown, which is Nazareth, and we find out that as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue. If there was a Nazareth news at the time, they may have prepared for his coming by running the headline saying something like, local, local man returns home to preach, or carpenter turns celebrity preacher to visit the synagogue pulpit this coming Sabbath day. So he comes into the synagogue, you'll notice what he does in verse 16. As was his custom, he came and he stood up to read. We don't know if he asked for the scroll of Isaiah, but he receives the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which would have been quite a large scroll to handle, and eventually he unrolls it all the way to where he gets to, in our Bibles at least, chapter 61. And he's going to read verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah's prophecy. And within his reading, It tells us much about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and I want you to notice three specific things. It tells us about the Messiah's person and work, the first of which is that Jesus fulfills God's promises. You see how verse 18 begins? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, if you know the original context for Isaiah 61, it's delivered to a people who are in exile in Babylon, It's the promise of a Messiah to come who will bring God's people, restore them from exile, redeem them to their land. And Jesus is now saying here that this almost millennium-long prophecy is coming to fulfillment as I read from Isaiah in your hearing. He is the anointed Messiah who is indwelt by God's Spirit who comes to redeem God's people from exile. So, what we learn about Jesus, first of all, is he fulfills God's promise. But then as verse 18 continues, we see that Jesus comes to preach the gospel of forgiveness. Because notice how it continues. What's the point of the Spirit falling upon the Messiah according to this passage? We look at how 18 continues. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So students, look down again at verse 18. Do you see two words 
repeated twice in one verse. First, it's the word what? Proclaim. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. He is sent by the Spirit of God into the world to do what? Preach. Preach the good news, to preach the gospel. How many of you, when you think of Jesus, the first kind of image that comes into your mind related to what he came to do is he came to be a preacher? It's why he came. Notice at the end of even our chapter in verse 43 of Luke chapter 4, Lord willing, we'll get there next week. He reminds the crowds, you'll notice in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He came as a preacher of the gospel, but what kind of good news does he preach? What kind of, of gospel does he love to proclaim? It's found in that second word. What's the other word repeated twice in verse 18? Liberty. Liberty. It's an interesting word insofar as it's ordinarily translated in our English translations throughout the New Testament as forgiveness. It's the exact same word that's already shown up in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, where we're told that John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, so maybe you're in here this morning and you are trying to investigate the claims of Christ. Maybe a friend has invited you or a family member you're visiting this weekend. You've come to attend church with them and you've often heard of Christians talking about this word gospel. It doesn't get used in our culture very much anymore. What exactly is the gospel? You know, kids, it might be a wonderful thing to talk with your parents later on today. How might you describe and define the gospel? Well, in this part of the passage, the gospel focuses on forgiveness. That the good news is that sinners like you and me can be forgiven. That our sin, its penalty, can be washed away because Jesus shed his blood on the cross. It was the perfect atoning sacrifice for sinful people like you and me. So do you want to know how you might begin to truly see if a church loves Jesus Christ and is fixated appropriately on the gospel? Notice how much they emphasize, accent, amplify forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. And having forgiven much, we forgive much of others. He comes to preach the gospel of forgiveness. And you'll notice in verse 19, he comes to bring the good news of freedom. For the word proclaim shows up yet again, that he's been anointed with the Spirit. You'll notice verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the background here in the Old Testament comes from the book of Leviticus where God called his people once every 50 years to enjoy a year of jubilee. It was a year where pretty much everyone and everything within the Israelite culture got to hit the reset button. Debts were forgiven, social reform came, slaves were freed, and this is the idea that Jesus says. The jubilee once every 50 years was pointing towards this final jubilee that would come with God's Messiah. That people would be forgiven, freed, from their debt of sin, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus came and canceled the record of debt that stood against us. And it's fascinating if you understand really what Jesus is doing here. He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and we stand almost in the 2000th part of that year that is ongoing as we wait for his return, the year of Jubilee continues. We even sang earlier this morning, didn't we? He, pray, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner 
free? What kind of people did he come to preach to, to announce the arrival of the kingdom to? Well, if you look again, you'll see it's the poor, it's the captives, it's the blind, it's the oppressed. Be encouraged this morning that even from the earliest part of his ministry in Luke's gospel, that Jesus has always been on the side of the underdog. Those whom the world doesn't accept, God loves to welcome and accept into his family through Jesus Christ. What you see throughout his ministry in Luke's gospel is Jesus is always going into the highways and into the byways to proclaim this good news of forgiveness and freedom to the least, the lost, and the left out. You might even be in here this morning and you feel like one of those categories is the one in which you live. You feel forgotten, poor in spirit, captive to sin, oppressed by the enemy, left out within the world. And Jesus came to speak a word of kindness to you, a word of fulfillment, a word of forgiveness, a word of freedom. So he takes his scroll, he rolls it back up, he hands it to the attendant, and he sits back down, which was the posture of preaching in the ancient synagogue. Because remember, his sermon actually hasn't begun. He's just only read the text. So what's he going to say? What's the first word from this carpenter turned preacher from Nazareth to the synagogue in Nazareth? Well, look at verse 21. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the tense is so important, isn't it? About to be fulfilled. Soon to come to fruition. It has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's as though Jesus says, today, all of your expectation of a Messiah to come has finally arrived. All of your longing for full and final salvation, it is now here. And I suppose we can't possibly imagine the look that would have fallen on the synagogue. It was really the equivalent of an ancient mic drop moment. As Jesus says, today, It has come. So they spoke well of him. You'll notice 22. They're marveling at his gracious words coming from this man that they have known, so many of them, for most of their life. He's preaching a gospel of fulfillment, forgiveness, and freedom. And what will they do with it? Some of you know the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's considered by many the prince of preachers in the 19th century. He was an unbelievably gifted individual. He preached his first sermon at the age of 16. Went to a small thatched roofed hut that was full of poor farmers and their wives to preach his first sermon. And he took as his text from 1 Peter chapter 1, therefore to you who have believed Christ is precious. And he began to speak about the grace and and the glory of Jesus Christ. And and not long into his sermon, the story goes that one elderly woman in the congregation, in the audience, lifted up her voice and said, Dear boy, how old are you? Spurgeon, 16 years old, says, Ma'am, I will not tolerate interruptions in the Lord's service. (laughs) And he proceeded to preach. Jesus is interrupted, do you notice? He's only begun. They say at the end of verse 22, they ask, is not this 
Joseph's son? This is Joe's boy. We know him. And he's the Messiah? If you've paid attention to Luke's gospel, you know that there's even something of a very significant underlying current with the identity of Jesus at this moment because we know from Luke 1 on, no, he's not Joseph's son. He's adopted by Joseph, yes, but this is God's son who is preaching in the synagogue. So how is this sermon then going to continue? Well, you see verse 23. He says, doubtless you will say to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And what you see here is a first instance of what happens over and over in the Gospels as Jesus is, is ministering, and it's not long before the crowds will say, well, give us a sign. Do a, a work of of majesty or a work of might that we might believe who you actually are. They essentially say to Jesus, okay, hold on. We've seen you in the carpentry shop for the last few decades, and now you say that you're in fact the Messiah we have long been waiting for. Well, we've, we've heard, Jesus, you've been doing these wonderful things in Capernaum, so why don't you do one of them in front of us right now, and then we might begin to actually think that you are indeed the Messiah. From the earliest days of our Lord's ministry, the reading and preaching of Christ has not satisfied merely religious people. They want more, something they can see, something they can experience, something they can point to. And do you not know how often Jesus doesn't give them a sign? Might you even be in here this morning in the course of your last few weeks or maybe the, even the first few weeks and months of this year and you're looking for a sign in order to believe. Lord, I have read your word. Lord, I have heard your son preached, but I need something more if I'm going to believe that Jesus is who he says he really is. Well, he begins to deal with their objection, you'll notice in verse 24, by responding to their proverb with a proverb of his own. He says, truly, more literally in the Greek, amen, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So do you notice how they were attracted to God's preacher, and now they're beginning to reject God's son? The attraction is moving to rejection. There's even something of an ironic play on words going on in verse 24 because if you look back at verse 19, it's often translated rightly so as the son or the Messiah comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's acceptance. Yet this very Messiah is not accepted in his hometown. So he begins to continue his sermon, preaching from matters of history. He says, okay, if you just scan your eyes through verse 25 through 27, he calls on two old prophets that were quite popular and powerful in the early days of Israel, Elijah and Elisha. If you know anything about these instances to which he refers, these were moments in Israel's history when their spirituality was at an unusually low ebb. Idolatry was ruling, unfaithfulness and unrepentance was reigning, and God had sent these power uh, preachers to turn the people back to God, and yet they wouldn't, and so what he ended up doing is sending both Elijah and Elisha outside of Israel to minister his grace to, first, Elijah, a Gentile widow, and secondly, Elisha to a Gentile, a Syrian named 
Naaman. And you're going to go wrong in what happens next following Jesus' sermon if you don't understand that there is undoubtedly an implicit warning within Jesus' recall of these two prophets unto the synagogue. He's saying, do you remember the time in which you rejected one of God's prophets and he sent that prophet away and that prophet ministered to those who were your enemies, those whom you despised, Of course we know, don't we, from the fullness of the Bible that Jesus came, in fact, to save people from every tribe and tongue that his rejection in Israel was going to be in some ways the very means that God was going to use to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. They ought not to have been surprised that this Messiah wasn't going to merely come to overthrow their enemies. He was going to come to minister the gospel to them. But they don't tolerate it, do they? The warning doesn't bring repentance. What does it bring? Wrath. Do you see that? Rage. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So picture the moment, kids. You have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, preaching his first sermon, his his eloquent, powerful inaugural address. And in the span of just a few words, they go from being attracted to him to rejecting him to grabbing him by the scruff of the neck, leading him out of the synagogue, taking him all the way to the cliff that was near the town at Nazareth, fully intending to throw him off the side so that this preacher might be silenced. And yet these people who wanted a sign, in some ways they got a sign as he slipped through their fingers. Just walked away. We don't know if it was a miracle or exactly how it happened. But why did they reject him? Why were they so eager not just to keep him quiet, but to kill him. Jesus announced the coming of a kingdom that didn't fit with their personal preferences. This is not the kingdom they wanted. But he came, didn't he, to announce the arrival of God's kingdom that would bring God's gospel to the ends of the earth. So even as we now think about how we might close and apply this passage, I want you to first understand from this text that there is a warning unto us about the danger of over-familiarity with Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of you know that I'm in the midst of completing my doctoral dissertation on a 19th century Presbyterian pastor named Robert Murray McShane. You can actually pray for me this week. It's due by 11.59 p.m. on Thursday night if I want to graduate in May. And so in recent months, my advisor, Dr. Yule, we've been working through the manuscript, editing it and revising just nonstop. And I have been amazed as I've gone through this process how often and how easy it is to miss simple grammatical errors, errors of annotation within the dissertation. And even a few weeks ago, I had expressed my frustration to Dr. Yule. I was like, how many times do I have to look at this before I'm going to get all of them? before I'm going to fix all of these errors. And he said, well, take heart in this. Studies have shown that once you look through your own manuscript six times, you cease to be able to see what you need to see in order to fix the problems. (laughs) In other words, I guess it's just normal. You become so familiar with something, you don't see what you must. Do you not see that we can even be that way with the Lord Jesus Christ? So familiar with the eternal Son of God, the perfect God-man who came to save sinners like you and me, that the Christ and the King of Kings just becomes commonplace to us. 
Why did they reject him? Surely, in, in a way in which I can even personally understand, they see Jesus coming to the synagogue and all they have in their mind are 30 years of seeing him as Joseph's son working in the carpentry shop. He's really the Messiah? Surely that can't be right. And what even a, a warning? Maybe exhortation this might be for those of us who are parents as we want to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We want them, don't we? to be familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ, but not so familiar that he ceases to bring them awe, wonder, and praise. Even for those of us who are leaders here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we want to be familiar with the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word, but not so familiar that we cease to fall down in our souls in adoration and reverence before him, lest we miss him altogether. So there's the danger of over-familiarity of Jesus Christ that I want you to see this morning, but also we need to notice the centrality of proclamation in the church's mission. He came to preach. Three times the prophecy of Isaiah says, the Spirit will fall and anoint him so that he might proclaim the gospel. I'm sure many of you know, some of you know, that we live now in an age once again where a social gospel threatens to kind of derail the church's spiritual mission as though social justice is the true means in which the church is supposed to live in the world. And one of the proof texts for such a position is our very verses before us. But even though there is, I do believe, a social and political effect that comes from the gospel, the church's mission in Christ's intent is always spiritual. He says, today this has been fulfilled, but no blind person has now seen. We don't know of anybody in the synagogue who has been released from their chains, captives, and oppressed who have been freed. He comes preaching the good news, announcing the gospel of forgiveness and freedom. This is always the center part of the church's mission. Another preacher you may have heard of from church history is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welshman who preached uh, in London with great effect throughout the middle part of the 20th century. And the first church he ever was a pastor of was this Calvinistic Methodist Welsh congregation that was very much entrapped to the social gospel of the time. Uh, what they wanted to try to do was excite people into Christ via entertainment. So much earlier in church history than you may have thought, they were drama, bringing dramas into the church, plays into the ordinary Lord's Day worship service. So they had a small little pulpit that they would take and remove according to how the dramas came into the service. And Lloyd-Jones, as kind of just a marker of his ministry, took that pulpit on his first week and nailed it to the ground right in the middle of the center of the church to say this is the center of our mission. Hearing of Jesus Christ through the preaching of his word. I'm thankful we have a nice big pulpit <laughs> here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Center in our attention each Lord's Day and I hope in our affection as well, but we dare not become over, overly familiar with this, and then the next generation just assumes the importance of preaching, and then the second generation denies the importance of preaching and the mission of the church. Finally, this morning, I want you to see God's sovereign mercy towards sinners. 
there's something fascinating to me that goes on in Jesus' reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. He stops short. He doesn't read it all. Look back at Isaiah 61, and I want to show you what I mean. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 is what he has read in the hearing of the synagogue there at Nazareth. We have studied briefly together this morning. And again, if you just kind of scan your eyes through verse 1, this is what Jesus was reading to the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Notice verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus' period ends, doesn't it? Isaiah has a comma, though, doesn't he? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and what? The day of vengeance of our God. So why did he stop? Well, do you not know that the first coming of Jesus Christ was a coming of God's love, mercy, and grace, and salvation? It's at the second coming of Jesus Christ that vengeance and judgment will finally and fully be meted out upon an unbelieving world. So we now, in a very real sense, still live in the age, in the year of this jubilee of forgiveness and freedom. God's mercy towards you, towards me, is so long and so patient that he's still saving sinners like you and me. So maybe the question that we really need to ask is, have I accepted Christ or am I rejecting Jesus Christ? how might you even begin to know of God's mercy, sovereign love towards you in Christ Jesus that you might be induced this morning by the Spirit's power to accept him if you haven't yet done it? Well, see that the Son of God came. He was born under the law, sinless yet in a world of sin, And what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ? The perfect, obedient Son of God lifted up himself to be the sacrifice for sinners like you and me. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. So deep is the sovereign mercy of Christ towards you. He got the day of vengeance so we get to live in the year of jubilee. And have you come to him? Have you heard the announcement of the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ? And through faith and repentance, are you accepting Christ and so have been welcomed into that kingdom? That, my friends, is the question for us this morning. Let us pray. Father, we do confess unto you that we are So many of us in this room are people who are so familiar with Christ that we admit we often have lost the wonder at what he did and why he came and who he is. So we pray that you would forgive us of our small thoughts of Jesus Christ, that you would raise our affections for him, that even as we hear him read scripture and preach it in the midst of the synagogue at Nazareth, that we might be brought to renewed faith, renewed repentance, or maybe for the first time, trusting and turning, trusting in Jesus and turning from our sin. 
and finding your acceptance and declaration of righteousness in Christ alone. So Lord, we do pray that you would help us unto these ends, that you would glorify your name in our midst. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we